Welcome to the second episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Drohan. Join me as together we explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. In this episode, I catch up with a literal living legend whilst on her mission to explore the limits of her human potential and in doing so, changing the perception of what is humanly possible. We cover a lot of different territories during our chat, including what sort of mental training it takes for a professional fighter to willingly enter a life or death situation literally over 220 times and counting, how to sustain yourself financially when your passion pursuit doesn't make enough money for you to pay the bills, let alone your post-fight medical expenses, and how to deal with a young Thai pad holder who's decided that you are going to be the butt of his joke and he's the only one laughing. You'll have to excuse the audio quality of this particular recording, which was uh, recorded over Skype whilst I was in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and Sylvie was on the road to a fight the very next day. I'd had a software crash literally five minutes before the interview was scheduled, and it was pretty much panic stations to even get the call live uh, in the one-time window I had to interview Sylvie and her dog, as it happens. I'll also preface this cast by saying I was a little more than nervous a little bit starstruck too. Uh, I'd been following Sylvie's career for several months prior and had just recently been fortunate enough to catch her in action live at Taipei Stadium in Chiang Mai, where she was gracious enough to meet with me straight after having suffered a really hard fought decision loss. I'm pleased my nervousness doesn't appear to have come through too heavily in the recording. When I listen back, I think that might be a silver lining of the shitty equipment I used on the day. Without further ado, this is the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your guest, Westerner with the greatest amount of professional Muay Thai fights in Thailand of all time, Sylvie Von Douglas Itu. Hello. Hey, Sylvie, it's Mike. Hey, what's up? <laughs> How you doing? Good. Um, because I'm in the car and my dog is right behind me, I don't know if you're going to have his panting on your audio or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. He can be involved as much as he wants. Okay. <laughs> I was just um, stuffing around with Skype. I just updated to the, the latest version. And of course, that knocked out all my audio recording stuff and then had to do this kind of shotgun reinstall, but it's all working, so that's good. Okay. <laughs> How are you doing? So you're, you're on the road right now on the way to Chiang Mai. Yeah, so I fought last night in Bangkok. And then we stayed the night there and got up this morning and heading up to Chiang Mai and I'll fight at Taipei tomorrow night. Cool. And how's the body feeling uh, after yesterday? Uh, feels like after a fight always. <laughs> Pretty good. It, the, the mind boggles to me that you can back up a fight so quickly. Like it's just from the Western training mentality that doesn't even seem feasible that you're, you're doing two fights in 72 hours. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of these things that uh, the more I've done it, the more I realize that I'm sore and tired anyway. So you might as well get a fight in while you're already sore and tired because you're going to get that way from the next one also. <laughs> so right. it's like a two for one. Yeah, yeah. And I guess at the level of conditioning and training that you are at at this point in your sort of fighting career, it's the sort of thing you can do. It's probably not something you'd want to do starting out, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah. I also, from my end, I find it, I don't know how people do it where they like lead into a fight for six weeks or, you know, four months or something and then go on like a bender the night after because they've been cutting and stuff like, like 
that seems so difficult to stop all the time. <laughs> like, right. So it depends on what, you know, what your routine is, I guess. Right. And once you've got that momentum with you and you're in the, the frame of mind uh, and, and physically as well to, to keep crack, tracking along like that, I guess you might as well. Yeah. So this is fight number, you'll be coming up to fight number 222. Is that correct? Uh, no, it's going to be 221 tomorrow. Right, right. Which is just, to me, is just an astronomical number. I like, I can't even get <laughs> my my head around that. And, and these are, the vast majority of these 221 fights have been in Thailand, correct? Yeah, all except for, there was one in Laos and then nine in America. So uh, almost all of them, yeah. Wow, okay. So I had a bit of a, a look um at sort of the annals of, of Muay Thai heroes and, and the numbers that they had done from, from European fighters um, and uh, an Australian fighter. So you'd probably be familiar with John Wayne Parr, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he, he had, uh, he's kind of like the Australian Muay Thai hero. He had 30 fights in Thailand. Um, yeah. And Ramon Deck is, so he's like the, the Dutch kickboxer, switched over to Muay Thai, who again was kind of seen as, the, as the, the person who made the most inroads as a European into Muay Thai. He got 223 total fights combined with his Thai fights. So you're at 221 and it's just, does it seem unreal to you at this point that you've gotten to such a, a huge number or are you kind of, I saw that your your most recent goal is is to hit 450 fights. So <laughs> just it'll be interesting to get a bit of an insight as to, to I guess goal setting and how you've gone from I think your original objective was like 10 fights and 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 where you are now how did you progress across that those sort of lines um I think that it's when I when I first set my mind on 10 that was when I was I had never fought before I was in America I think that my husband and I were driving an hour down to Brooklyn so that I could spar for like 15 minutes with this female sparring circle that we'd set up. Um, and 10 just seemed like a good possible number. Like it, it was so hard to even find fights. There was nobody my size and like all of these things. So that seemed like a reasonable American amateur career was 10 fights. Mm -hmm. But when I came to Thailand for the first time, um, I met this woman also named Sylvie, also my size. She's from Canada. Her name is Sylvie Charbonneau. And she was at uh, Lana Muay Thai camp in the north. Mm -hmm. And she had fought 50 times and then retired after 50. Um, and it took her about five years that she was in Thailand doing that. But the number 50 fights was more than like anyone I knew other than uh, my trainer, Master K, who was like a 70-year-old Thai man. He had had something like 70 fights or something like this, 79. And um, that number just seemed insane. Like who has 79 fights? Who has 50 fights? So <laughs> Yeah, they do. They uh, just seem astronomical. They're crazy. And so I was getting into the truck after like my second, maybe even my, I think it was my second fight ever, but my first fight in Thailand. I was getting into the truck and I looked at Andy, who was the owner of Lana Muay Thai at the time. And I said, I want 50 fights. And his eyes just lit up and he was like all right then like to him that was a crazy in thailand and to him that's a crazy number but he's like okay like if you say it okay do it yeah. and so 
when we moved to Thailand, my, my aim was 50, but we didn't even know if that was possible because we thought maybe I'd only be able to live here for like six months or something. Mm -hmm. But once I got into the rhythm of like convincing my trainers that yes, I really do want to fight all the time because Westerners just don't fight like that here. Mm. Um, more and more they do now, but they didn't when I was first coming. Um, once we got close to 50, it, like we didn't even get to 50 yet. And I moved the mark to a hundred because it was like 50 is going to happen. So you have to move it. It's like, you can't, you can't achieve what you are going for and then think, what am I going to do next? It's like, you already have to be thinking of where you're going to be climbing before you reach that plateau, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I think that when fit, when 50 and a hundred became possible, it's like, all right, 200. It's, I think probably one of the, my favorite little quotes of yours from your biography that's online on, um, eightlimbs.us um, is this one and it says you don't see a thousand blog posts when you write your first entry not knowing if anyone other than your mum will read it and you don't see yeah. 200 fights when you leave flushed and exhilarated from your first training session but you learn to see them as they come into view and you climb toward the summit even if you don't know where that is yet and I think for me personally and you know having experience different challenges like tra training for even like a marathon and, th and little things like that in comparatively because you know you're not you're probably not going to get grievous bodily harm from training from a marathon it's it's those it's the perception of what you can do and just kind of jumping on this journey uh, and heading towards these these summits um, and then the the view it comes into view and you feel like it's realistic and then you set goals again based on having achieved that and you're kind of building your own uh, belief in yourself. Have you got any sort of processes per se? Like a, I personally use like a, a life planning document. So every couple of months I go back to a document where I've written down a few things I wanted to achieve. And one of those things was want to go to Thailand, want to uh, spa in Thailand. So I've kind of ticked that off my list now and now I'll set other goals um, in that document. Is it, have you got something running like that which you've used or that you would recommend to set these for, for the process of goal setting? Um, I I don't know if you can recommend things you don't do. It's one of those like do as I say not as I do. I do not have documents like this, although I think that I should. Um, I did a very intense 12-week mental training group with this uh, American man named Ni Shobo. He's a... Um, He's a mental training coach for athletes and for like business people. And he invited me to be part of his group. And it was so hard. Like I am not an organized, like have a morning routine, um, you know, teach yourself to think these thoughts kind of things. And I know that I would benefit so much from it. Mm -hmm. And when I went through the program, it was so insanely hard yeah. that if anything is that hard for you, it's clearly like a weakness that that needs to be addressed. Um, so I have tried to do things like that. And I definitely um, do have my own routine that I, that I stick to, to be able to do the things that I do. But in terms of the, like the way that any systematized mental coach will tell you how to, you know, achieve these goals and write them down and like piece them out and chunk them and all these things. Um, I, I think that I recommend that to people and to myself more than I actually do it. <laughs> it <would really> <laughs> <laughs> I guess like 
it's what works for you as well. I mean, uh, the systems and processes are all well and good, and it's good to know about them. But I mean, you know that you've achieved what you've achieved through the methods that you're using, which may or may not be uh, best practice, shall I say? But yeah. you've seen results from them, so I think it's it's totally um, up to the individual as to as to how and and why they use sort of things at their disposal. Um, I think what I really liked about your blog when I started reading it was uh, on the topic of kind of the mental game of, of Muay Thai um, is, is how much of an insight it gave to that aspect of things um, and how open you were about. Uh, I'd watch sort of post-fight videos of yours and you know, you'd, you'd clearly just come off a very hard fight or you'd come off a loss which um, you know, had clearly sort of rocked you a bit and you were, you were in the moment and this was 10 minutes after a fight, you're vlogging about it and you're very raw and you know, the, your emotional state is understandably um, quite raw. Um, that, that insight to things I think is something that fighters and people in general don't usually give to other people uh, willingly. Um, I'd yeah. be interested to kind of know, uh, well, let's, first and foremost, how, how you've, you've worked on the mental game aspect of Muay Thai and how important it is to, to such a, a, a difficult and a physically challenging sport that's, that is, in its own right, extremely dangerous if you're not, um, it can be extremely, extremely dangerous. Um, I think that it's been an evolving process. Um, you know, that there's a saying that um, sports are like 90% mental. I think that the deeper you go into it, the higher that number goes. So when you're first starting out, it is very physical. You're just learning the mechanics of how to make your body move in the right ways. You're getting conditioned, you know, all of these things. It starts out pretty physical. And then the more you get into it, the more it becomes just mental even to get your body to do those physical things becomes more and more mental. Mm. And I think that's really difficult for people because when you're first starting out, going from zero to something is a huge change. So it seems like you're making progress and everything's really rapid and exciting and new. And then once you've spent some time in it, all of a sudden you have expectations and you're like, why am I not better? Like, why is this guy next to me at the gym able to kick and he's been here for two weeks and I've been here for three months and my <laughs> like, it's hurt. You start comparing yourself to things that have nothing to do with what your actual experience is. Whereas when you're new, everything is new. So you don't expect anything or compare anything. Mm. But the deeper you go, it becomes so mental because mentally you start getting into yourself on it or you start getting into strategy or um, what kind of fighter you want to be or anything like this. So I think that my own development of understanding how important the mental side was, was basically that I reached a breaking point. Um, when, like I knew mental training was important. My brother is actually a sports psychologist and I hated the like terminology. Like I really hate the word self-talk. Like it sounds like Stuart Smalley talking into a mirror about how he <laughs> And I, I shouldn't mock it because that stuff is so important because when, when I talk to myself in my head, I would never talk to another human being like that ever. Like mm. I would be the biggest asshole if I said the things out loud that I say to myself. And 
actually understanding that you shouldn't talk to yourself like that either is Mm. I think, especially for women, very hard to um, come to terms with because I think that women are kind of taught to self-regulate much younger and much harder uh, than a lot of men are. So men hit that wall a little bit later and they've already experienced a little bit of success so they can kind of buffer themselves a little bit with it. But I think women hit that wall really early and it kind of stagnates us because we just haven't maybe necessarily achieved something external to be able to buffer what we're feeling internally. Mm. Um, and so we take a lot of those thoughts to be true. So, um, I kind of had this breakthrough. I lost a fight in a really bad way. Like (laughs) I had just moved to my gym, Petrungrung and I fought, um, it was probably like my third or fourth fight with them. And I just bombed in the ring. It was so bad. Trainer was like, fought badly like right to my face Oh no! (laughs) and then then I had a fight like eight days later for um the king's birthday in Bangkok which is something I'd been wanting to do for like four years that I'd been in Thailand I wanted to fight on the king's birthday and I was fighting fights you know that these these are what the Thais hold in particular esteem (laughs) is is these kind of symbolic fights and, and these aligning with the king's birthday or in particular events right so I, I just bombed. I just like shot the bed essentially. And I had to go have a fight in Bangkok that was really important. I was fighting against a woman from Japan who was known as the genius. Um, and I basically had eight days to get my shit together. Like I could not keep my, the way I was mentally in that fight that I lost and go into this other fight. And I also couldn't be crushed by the pressure of how big this other fight was. And so I just spent those eight days not thinking so much about physically anything I could change in my fighting because in eight days you can't change anything physically. And I just focused on mental training, like visualization, you know, waves calming down. When thoughts would come, I'd be like, that's just a thought, like not giving it power. And I ended up having one of the best fights I'd had in my career up until that point. I won on the King's birthday, like in Bangkok, I totally dominated my opponent, like all this really great stuff that then you can't come out of that and be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm done with mental training. (laughs) It's like, now you've seen how important that is. And you're basically starting from, you know, the first rung on the ladder. And it's exactly the same thing of when you first start training yourself physically, you have a lot of growth. When you first start training yourself mentally, you're like, oh, I can do this. And then all of those grooves that you've had in your brain for however old you are, you keep throwing these gutter balls, you know, like you have these grooves when your thoughts come, they're going to go on those same tracks. So I think that it becomes not only more important as you go, but you have to spend more effort really wearing new grooves, which is incredibly hard to do as you're getting older. You're like, I've already thought these thoughts for like 30 years and now it's, you know, got to change them. Well, it's, it's really, I mean, that's, that's really insightful. I, I, I totally get where you're coming from with that. And I, I think it's, it's tricky because we're of the generation that, and I think this is changing now, but as, as a child, uh, growing up, Things like addressing your mental wellness or your mental preparedness for pressure situations just were never really ever addressed um, yep. during the process of schooling or sports. And when it came to sports, it was always about 
physically, this is what you do to shoot the ball better. You know, you take lots of shots, you practice, you get better at it. Um, and then when things came to the clinch game, you started missing the free throws. You were thinking, oh, shit, like this is all gone pear-shaped and nothing I can do has really prepared me for, for this battle, which is that I've got all the tools now, I've done all the practice, but something's holding me back. Um, right. So I think, you know, it is such a, a, a key a key part of things and it's and I, I can totally see how it becomes more and more important the more advanced you get in in any sort of um, sport or whatever it is or business even you know you, you get to a senior level and the mental game is is absolutely what uh, is going to separate you from being able to progress or probably stagnate in a, in a position is how much you're able to progress with those things um, I've noticed through my limited experience at Thai gyms that the ties themselves have a very kind of interesting mental game in that they always seem very happy-go-lucky even uh, in adversity or when they're putting you through punishing drills. Uh, they just think it's great stuff. They're, they're smiling and, and beating away on you or, or making you uh, just feel like an infant when you train with them. Um, what have your experiences been with that sort of that tie happy-go-lucky demeanor and where do you think it kind of comes from? Oh, that's a complicated question. <laughs> mm. um, my first experience, uh, my first time in Thailand, this kid, Big, who kind of became one of my heroes when I finally moved here, um, he was probably, I don't know, like 17 at the time, and he was holding pads for me, and he kept punching me in the stomach with his pad, like with the edge of it, that really painful, <laughs> like sharp edge, and he yeah. would jam it in every time I would he'd tell me to punch and then he'd punch me like between stuff and he was laughing so hard at it. <laughs> it was probably like three rounds or something, but in that 15 minutes of three rounds, I had to figure out he is not like, he's not punishing me and he's not even necessarily making fun of me, but it is a dick move. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not just like, Oh, we're, we're playing this game together. Like he's playing the game on me. But there's something about the like, are you going to lose your mind in this process where they're laughing about it and you're not laughing about it is you mm. have to learn to laugh. Like you, if you're not part of the joke, you are the joke. Like you have to get in on it. And so I think that was my very first experience with it. And then the longer I've been here, understanding the Thai cultural importance of Jayan Yen, the like cool heart and not showing emotions in extremes, whether they're good or bad, like you're just supposed to be very even keel. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's helped me because it, it absolutely helps. You know, you see these ties in the ring that look like they're just so poker face. Like oh. it's insane how calm they seem in the situation of a fight. Like but I going think for that a walk, it's like, I'm, I'm just going for a little walk. Totally. But it, it adds to the aesthetic equilibrium of balance and composure that's so important to tie scoring anyway. So it's definitely something to learn to borrow and aspire to. Um, but I think that it's hard for Westerners because especially when you see people who have just come to a Thai gym, Westerners love to show how hard something is for them. Like we <laughs> want credit for how hard we're working. And so true. I will give you credit. They're like, if you're tired, I don't want to see it. Like you can be tired. Just don't show me. 
Whereas Westerners are like, look at how tired I am. And yet I'm still trying to throw this punch with really shitty technique. It's like, <laughs> you do not get credit for how hard you're working. Instead, you want to make it seem easy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think because, um, you know, I was I've been in Thailand during this time that the uh, those children and their soccer coach got stuck in the cave in Chiang Rai. Right. And just to see the even the composure that 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 bunch of people have shown during that process. And these are just young kids like I know at that age and stage, if I was a kid trapped in a cave uh, surrounded by water with a pretty high likelihood of death, I wouldn't have been anywhere near as composed as those kids. And I feel like, uh, I mean, a part of that, and allegedly the, the soccer coach was a monk or had had, had monk training and helped yeah. to keep the children calm through going through meditation practice, which I thought, wow, that, that makes sense. Like I do a bit of meditation myself and I've seen sort of the positive implications that can have uh, in terms of keeping you relaxed. But I'm not sure that you'd be able to get another group of kids anywhere in the world and put them in that cave and have them all come out as well as they did uh, and, and go through that process as well as they did without this sort of um, indomitable uh, indomitable Thai spirit that, that the people seem to have, everyone I've ever met in Thailand. There's this underlying like energy that, yep, yeah, whatever happens, happens, it's going to be okay. And, uh, you know, just living in the moment sort of thing. So it, it was incredible to see that firsthand and, and to have such a positive outcome, which was everyone left that cave alive. Um, yeah. So incredible stuff. Um, I also noticed that you do a bit of meditation yourself or you do the odd meditation retreat. That's, is that right? Yeah, so um, twice now I've gone on a three-day Vipassana meditation retreat at this uh, center in Patia near where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's one of these things where taking the three days to practice is really intensive because you have nothing else to do except observe body and mind and separate from them. No speaking um, for three days? No speaking for three oh, days. God. You meet no. with a monk twice, but you don't have to. Um, but it's, it's, for me, it was really interesting because all the ways I thought it was going to be really hard, it wasn't. And then ways that I didn't expect it to be hard, it was insanely hard. But that type of meditation, the Vipassana meditation, um, it's very difficult to do in small bursts. Like, um, you know, people say that you can have so much benefit from meditating just 10 minutes a day, which a hundred percent I agree with. Um, that particular meditation for me is difficult to do in very small segments. Um, so other types of meditation, like where you focus on your breath, uh, where breath is your focus, whereas in Vipassana, you focus on the body and the mind. Um, Mm. I think, I think that, that the breath focus in shorter bursts, like doing this a couple of times a day, um, has been more helpful for me. But when I come out of those retreats, I always have this thought, like, I have to keep doing this. Like when I walk my dog, I need to be doing it. When I'm laying down to take a nap, I need to start this way and all this stuff. And it's just so hard to integrate into the daily routine because my mind goes on its own daily routine, you know, and you have <laughs> It's kind of got its own autopilot system to an extent and you're interrupting it. Like it knows what it wants to do. <laughs> it, but 
But being able to put myself in those meditation state, well, it's not even a state, but in those three days of meditation where I do not bring my baggage with me has really illustrated to me how wrong I am about what's causing me to think or feel a certain way. So I would think that something happened at the gym that made me feel bad. And then having gone away and not experienced any of that and coming back to the gym, I'm like, it's not anything happening at the gym. It's like literally, oh, it's 3 p.m. My brain's going to start telling me I don't know how to do something. (laughs) It's crazy because you create these habits. So you have to interrupt it. You have to stop. It's like um, it's the same as as any physical habit. You know, you drop your hand when you're uh, sparring. Someone hits you in the face enough times, you're going to keep that hand up. But you have to be hit in the face a few times. Otherwise, someone's just going to tell you 40 times, keep it up. You know, that's why that's why it's helpful um, to have a little bit of a nasty trainer. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only way to learn is through through, uh, I guess, direct result in that that hurts. I need to fix it. Yes. Yeah, it's funny. I think the. In that regard, I mean, the, the more I sort of learn about myself and doing a little bit of meditation um, and also training, but all sorts of things, I find that the the human uh, the human mind game really defaults to kind of a negative space if you're not careful with it. And I think yeah. I don't know why where it comes from. You know, they talk about fight or flight. You know, if there's a if there's a big fucking woolly mammoth coming towards you. You're either going to try and take it down or you're going to run. They're kind of the systems that we've got built into us from back of being cavemen and cavewomen. Um, and I don't really understand where the system comes in that it's like, unless you actively reroute your brain sometimes, it will default to negative. Like that's in us. It will kind of go, mm, maybe just don't do that. You should just chill out and not really try that hard. So I think it's, it is interesting that, and I think it's it's beneficial to hear that there are ways to kind of help your your mental well-being through actively trying things like meditation um, and maybe going out there and trying a, a, a one-day course might be enough for someone. Three days actually of not talking scares the, the shit out of me, to be honest. I, I think I would – I don't know that I'd be better coming out of that. But then I, I feel like I, I've known people to do things like this and I've only ever heard extremely positive things. So I guess the lesson is – uh, you know, to try new things, is it's not going to kill you at the end of the day. And there could be a, a real benefit sort of sitting there somewhere um, that could have implications outside of what you expected it to be going in. So that's that's a good thing. Um, so jumping back to, let's talk a little bit about sort of how your, uh, let's talk about the, I guess, the, the Sylvie business, which is that you're a professional fighter. Um, you're also producing a lot of content. Uh, you've got you've got the eightlimbs.us website. You've got the Patreon uh, content platform. Maybe could you give us a little bit of an overview about how Sylvie as a business functions? Because you know people are thinking, how do you how do you live uh, as a full time fighter? And does fighting just pay enough for you to tour around and fight all the time? Like, how are you supplementing that income? Um, fighting definitely does not pay for anything. (laughs) Does it pay for for the medical bills? (laughs) No, no. no. uh, We're lucky if we can kind of break even on a trip with 
uh, that's one of the reasons I bundle fights. Like I'll try to fight two or three times in one trip in order to at least break even for the cost of renting a car, traveling, staying in a hotel, you know, all of these things that cost to get to the fight. Um, but I almost never break even it. It always, uh, is a deficit. Um, this is partially because women just don't get paid very much for fights here. And it's partially because, um, I, I fight in a different way than what, um, people who, you know, might be sponsored fighters at their gyms where they fight once every two months for, you know, 10,000, 25,000 bots, something like this. Women don't really have those opportunities, but men who come here and are fighting at Lumpani, Rajadamner, and Max Muay Thai, blah, 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 that kind of thing. They have a different um, opportunity path than what I have. So it's partially the way that I fight, and it's partially being a woman here. Um, but the eight limbs started when I moved to Thailand because it was a way to share as much of this experience as I could, because who gets to move to Thailand, right? So... I wanted to be as open about all of that and share as much of that as possible to kind of allow people to see what this experience or process is like, not even as a guide, but just, just because so few people have that opportunity that being able to see it changes your mind about what is possible. Um, when I was 14, my first job was um, building prairie dog fences which is basically just like a two foot high piece of tarp that you bury partway in the ground to keep prairie dogs out of like ranchers. Uh, I gotcha. you know? mm-hmm. And the reason it works is that prairie dogs, when they get up on their little hind legs, if they can see space, they'll go there. If they can't see space, they don't go. Like, so you're basically just a full foot high view of like where the ranch is and they won't go in. So I basically saw my, my website and my YouTube as taking away the prairie dog fence, like letting people see Thailand increases their chance of maybe I can go. Like mm. if, if Sylvie Charbonneau had not answered my Facebook message when I'm like, Hey, we're the same size. How are you fighting in Thailand? I don't know that I would have gone. Like I couldn't see it, you know? Mm. Um, so I think that trying to make as much of this visible as possible in order to inspire people to be like, I could do that. Like, I don't expect people to be like, I'm going to go do 200 fights, but there's a 16 year old in America. Who's like, I'm going to move to Chiang Mai when I graduate from high school and have 200 fights. She wouldn't have said that six years ago. Like nobody would say, I'm going to go have 200 fights. I didn't say that six years ago. <laughs> that's <laughs> <Yeah>. a crazy <laughs> but, So to me, to me, that's what the business of Sylvie is, is just, this experience is so rare and I am not unaware of that. And so being able to share as much of that as possible is like priority number one. And with patron that allows people to pay directly for content, which allows me to create more content than I'm able to do for like eight limbs. So when we subscription model, right, Sylvie? Yeah, it's a subscription and it's on tiers. So, you know, for $1, you get access to um, training videos uh, for $5, you get this $30, you get that, you know, this kind of thing. But when we travel for fights, we're stopping and seeing legends of Muay Thai and trying to archive through this documentary project, not only a very fast disappearing style and technique of Muay Thai, because these men are literally aging out of being able to train people. Um, 
but because I do long form videos, I don't do highlights. Like I, I don't edit together like a 30 second clip of looking badass. You get to see me suck at things for like 20 minutes at a time. Um, <laughs> You get to actually experience the men too, which you cannot describe. Like I absolutely love Dieselnoy <laughs> as a person and he's so hard to describe. But if you, I just put up an interview at a like 18 minute interview with him. You yeah. don't even have to say hi. If you watch him talk for five minutes, you're like, I get Dieselnoy. <laughs> I understand what this is. There's um, such characters and, in in this game, like in the in the Thai, especially that golden era, which you you uh, you're working with these incredible trainers who just you know these these are the gods of the sport. They, they all have these really just eclectic, interesting kind of personalities, uh, which really stands out in the content you produce. Yeah, and the their Muay Thai is expressing what kind of men they are, which to yeah. me is the most beautiful part. Like, yeah. if I if I watch like three or four smart fights, I see what he's like in the ring. But then when I met him and I put that together with the way that he fights, I'm like, oh my God, I get it. Like, I get it. Mm. That's, that is an expression of who he is as a man rather than like, do I like the way he kicks or not? Like, what a useless thing to see about a fighter. It's like, <laughs> you know? And it's, it, it carries over. It's not only Thai fighters, you know, like, um, huge personalities like Mayweather or McGregor, like you love them or hate them based on who they are and then how they fight expresses that. So being able to actually see these um, former fighters, which the, the English speaking audience never get to see um, mm. because basically there's just like a YouTube video of them fighting. Uh, Thai people know them. So Thai people being absolutely in love with Samart or Somrak or the way that they like, just absolutely loved Karahat uh, as a fighter. They, you know, were reading about him and watching him on TV and all these different things. Like they love an entire, like, person. It's it's like um, it's like the cowboy image or something in a movie. Yeah. That whole thing around him, like a backstory. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really it's amazing, isn't it? And I suppose it's the it's the sort of thing where it's it's a. Um, it's a hero in the hometown is always going to be appreciated in its in its own special way. You know, people people of the country they have their own special love for those for those heroes, and you can see yeah. that in the ties. You can see that in the in the crowds from the golden era '90s Muay Thai fights, where it, you know the the crowd is just so engaged, and you know yeah. you're hearing this like oh hey, for every single move that's done. Um, yeah. It's just an incredible thing to see, and the the energy of it is incredible. So I think, you know, you even capturing uh, a, a slice of that and sharing that is extremely uh, inspirational. And I, I I was inspired just watching that content, and I think other people who will get a chance to, um, and I'll put all the information about your uh, Patreon and and bits and bobs in the post part of this interview. Um, yeah, I, I can't highly recommend it enough, even if you're never going to jump in the gym or do any Muay Thai. I think it's just so interesting. Um, in, in terms of the, the percentage breakdown, just very roughly in terms of your income, how, how would you allocate it towards like percentage coming from fights, percentage coming from Patreon, percentage coming from whatever? How, how would you kind of, could you roughly give an overview from that? Um as close to a hundred percent from patron as you can get. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. It's the backbone of, of your, yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. 
Okay, so move, uh, uh, one other thing, actually, while we're on the topic, I noticed that you had Kickstarter-funded 8limbs.us. Is that correct? Yeah, so when I was moving to Thailand, um, we had to pay for the domain. Like, we had to pay to have a space to um, put everything. And so in order to, like, design the website and put it up and have something that could be, like, a nexus point for the different channels that I had just as social media, like... I had Facebook and I had YouTube, but people and I had my um, blog, but people would watch one of the three and not know about the other ones, which is right. still the case. Kind yeah. of crazy. There are people <laughs> who, you know, uh, are on my on my Facebook page and they're like, "Where can I see your fights?" And I'm like, "Are you are you joking? Go yeah. to YouTube." <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's insanely easy to find me on Google, but. Um, so, so creating eight limbs was like a nexus point to put everything together. Um, and that was, that was crowdfunded to actually create that website. Gotcha. Gotcha. And look, I, I guess for the people listening who, who I, I suppose most people would know about crowdfunding now, but as an alternate way to, to get something produced that you may not necessarily have the, the capital for at any given time, um, it's a great conduit for, for you to be, uh, for people who are interested in, in your mission, in your vision, to invest in whatever you want to do. And you can get a platform like that, uh, like Sylvie's got her website live, um, which may not have made uh, sense for you financially at the time to do it any other way. So I just think it's it's amazing to do that, uh, to be able to do that. Um, and as you've sort of said, it's kind of, it's the centralized owned digital asset that you have now. You've got your YouTube You've got your Facebook and all that stuff, but I guess the benefit of having a website is that you can you kind of own the audience that goes there, rather than it being YouTube's audience or Facebook's audience. They could sign up for your newsletter, and you can continue to um, converse with them and not have to sort of pay a royalty to reach more people through that platform. So uh, very to important. Me it, yeah, to me, it's really beautiful because it's basically a community supporting its own interests. Yes. You know, so like if if people are interested in the content, if people want more content, they're like, I'm taking part in creating that and making it possible. You know, you, you actively have a part in making that content possible. And so I absolutely see my patrons um, and the people who, who helped me with Kickstarter for the website is like these people lifted it up. Like people are putting their hands into the actual um you know, creation and, and process of this thing that they then get to uh, enjoy that content on the other end. It's I think it's really amazing. I'm always shocked when people think that it's a um, bad platform. <laughs> it's yeah. like, don't watch it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does what it needs to do. And I think uh, people in general are getting more and more picky about what, what – uh, what a user experience needs to be. And, you know, uh, when I use Amazon on my mobile phone, it's like this, so everything should be like this. But yeah. I think it, it does what you need it to do, and that's the key thing. And, and I think the other key thing there, as you mentioned, is, you know, you've, you've, you have a, a platform which al allows you to grow a community, a really engaged community, and they've had a part in producing that platform. Um, yeah. And I've got this little quote here from Confucius that, that sort of popped up, and it says, Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I may remember. Involve me and I will learn. And I think it's that it's that being involved aspect which businesses and and uh, all sorts of entities 
just fail to 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 kind of tick the box on but you and everything you do has involvement integrated in it in its core and i think that that really shines through and was why your your story and your content is so sticky to people and i still see people comment and i'm actually among them among them commenting on videos that you did a couple of years back they're, they're still got live comment streams so yeah <laughs> and I, do you get these weird pop-ups and you're like jesus why is someone writing this about four, why is someone having a youtube comments battle on my video from four years ago like it's just it seems yeah. to be never ending it's a it's not it's not confusing because it's always there but sometimes it's very sweet because you have to look at people's intentions right so i got mm. this actually quite long message from a man pretty recently who was like I just watched your video about why you do Muay Thai and I think you should keep with it. Like you're very oh. and I'm like, what a nice message. This is yeah. nine years ago. <laughs> Thank you. I've had 219 fights since then. I have kept going, but I, I still love that. He's like, keep going. Like, yes, I'm not yeah. going to be like, oh, that was eight years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. It's a wonderful message no matter when it comes. Right. It is, and it's, it's you know, in some funny little small way, he you know he's left that day going that that you know that was pretty kick-ass. I'm kind of inspired by that, yes. no matter who he is, <laughs> and despite yeah. the fact he doesn't realize that you've done over 220 fights now. Yeah. I'll still get people. It's um, it's Thai people mostly, but they'll see uh, the first fight where I got really badly cut, my Yokao fight with Lomani. It was more than four years ago, but I'll see these ties who recognize me from seeing that video and they'll come up and start like looking at my forehead to see if they can see this. <laughs> like, so tied. So many. And I'm like, because that was four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Not last. Oh, that's classic. I love yeah. it. Um, Sylvie, just a, like a, a miscellaneous sort of question. Tell me about your um, your ever-growing mm. tattoo collection. So I've, I sort of, I saw in your... Your older content, you were a you were a clean skin, as I currently am, tattoo free, uh, and you've progressively grown with. You've got all sorts of interesting pieces on your hands, on your chest, on your back, and they're all very. Uh, a lot of them are very traditional Thai looking uh, pieces of work, and they actually, to, to, between you and me, Jesus Christ, they look like they must have been painful. But <laughs> t tell me about that collection. Like, does it have a purpose, and what? What's the what's the destination or what's the goal for the for this uh, ink work you're getting done? Um, I have not been tattoo free for a very long time, but these mm. tattoos being visible is new. Um, mm -hmm. My first tattoos were not very visible, um, but I started get they're called Sakyan. Uh, it's a Thai traditional tattooing, and they're basically uh, magical tattoos. So if you think about the way that ties see like an amulet, how it offers protection and luck and um, degrees of influence and things like this. Uh, that's what a stakyan is, but it's in your skin rather than being an amulet that you wear. Uh, right. It doesn't come off. So you literally, um, you've got a 24 hour a day protection on you. Right. Um, to me, what's really meaningful about it is that what they they don't mean anything. They do things. They're like, they're like machines that do things. So, um, in offering protection or luck or influence or power or this kind of thing, when I look at them, I see them as physical representations of values that I want for myself. So 
Um, my sock yacht happened to be not for women <laughs> like, at all. Um, all of them are from the same Ajarn. Um, all of them have, have been from Ajahn P. Bunkating, who is absolutely incredible. Um, he's my teacher. So, um, I, I would be referred to as his student with my, with my tattoos. Um, is this is traditional it, like bamboo style tattoo method. Yeah. It's, um, it's like single or four needles on the end of a long rod. Okay. Um, and he, he makes the ink so the ink will have elements in it that are also, uh, spiritual, magical elements, you know, like the, um, the powder from the ashes from some certain temple or, or that kind of thing. Um, so it, requ it, <laughs> it required me to convince him a little bit to do my initial chest piece, um, because this is the, the chest piece itself. I, it's called a sangwan is the part that looks like a necklace across the front. This is not that weird for women to have. It's unusual, but it's not like insane. Um, but at the center of it, I have Parahu, who is basically a demon. Like <laughs> he's he's not like Satan, but he is chaos. So <laughs> gotcha. to have him on my chest as a woman, <clears throat> as the center of this tattoo, is like it's a statement. It's a bit of a statement. <laughs> yeah, Ajahn, Ajahn was like, "You do not know the impact this is going to have on people," and I was like. <laughs> I want the impact on me. Like this is, mm. this is the impact I want for me. And that was when he was like, okay. Um, because he understands that I'm a fighter and what I'm going for, for this. Um, but he was absolutely right. Like when I, I first had the chess piece, um, and I was walking, you have to walk like through the crowd to get to the ring at festival fights. Mm -hmm. The way people were parting <laughs> to make room. <laughs> looking at me as I was getting into the ring was like I was walking through the crowd with an axe in my hand or something. They were oh, like, wow. Shit. Um, and then when I got my tigers on my back, which was really hard, I have the whole upper part of my back done. It's two tigers on either side. And then there's a takro, which is that wicker ball mm -hmm. that they play, um, like kind of like foot volleyball with, yeah. um, that took four and a half hours. Uh, <laughs> And it was, it was re it was really intense. Um, it and must be. I like it. The these these pieces are big and they look very intricate. I just feel like that. Yeah, pain. I can only just. I just think pain when I look at them. Yeah, it's it's incredibly painful. But the pain is is part of it. It's part of the teacher. It's teaching you to, in the same way that in a fight you have to have that jian yen, like you have to be composed. Mm you have to learn to pull yourself together. Like near the end of the tattoo on my back, um, I started shaking. My, my mm. body was just going into shock. Like I couldn't help it. And, uh, I started shaking and I started like, I don't know, maybe hyperventilating a little bit. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing about Ajarn, cause he is a teacher. He's not just doing, he's not, a, not doing tattoos for like, you know, aesthetics. Um, he warned me, he was like, Sylvie, can you handle this? And so I calmed my breathing and tried to focus. And then when I started getting agitated again, he went harder until I calmed down, oh, which wow. is so to me, that's such a gift. And that's why I love my trainers who are really hard on me, who don't let me just fall apart because then you keep that weakness. They mm. stay on you. They're like, you are more than this, like become 
more than this right now, not later, not like, oh, I'll be stronger later, be strong now, like Mm. before you're ready for it. So that's why these tattoos to me, um, it's, it's not necessarily like I'm so badass. I want to represent that with these tattoos. It's, these are values and qualities of the kind of person I want to be. And I fucking hope I become that in my lifetime. Like you don't have to be that already, but the, the tattoos are meditative points on keep striving to be that, like keep being that you don't get to like, I'm badass and now I'm done. <laughs> it's, it's, like you kinda, it's a real commitment all the time. And you have to like keep pulling it together. Mm. Mm. I like that. And I guess <clears throat> in, a, in a way, yeah, it's this constant reminder that if, if you're ever feeling a little bit frayed or at any moment, if you're in a fight or, and things are going a bit south, uh, you know, you've done, you've done this, you've been through all these processes of reinforcement that you can do this and you can get by and you've had these hard moments with trainers and, and all that sort of jazz that you can draw on when things get particularly tough. And I think it's probably part of, a big part actually, and it's definitely a big part of why you've been able to uh, get such a, a, an incredible number of fights under your belt and are still saying, you know what, like let's serve up another 200 because <laughs> yeah. I'm game. Like, you know, the mind boggles. Um, So I've got, like, this sort of finishing section, which I run through a couple of doing epic stuff uh, standard questions. Um, And then I'll let you get on your merry way because I'm sure you want to conserve whatever energy you can before you're in the ring (laughs) later today. What time's your fight, by the way? Uh, My fight is tomorrow night. It's at Top Pay, and I'm usually last, so it'll be, like, 10.30 or 11 or something. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, Okay, so... What do you perceive as the greatest benefit to have come from your journey thus far? The people who I've met. Mm. That comes out in your content so so uh, so clearly, um, and I feel like you get the most excited when you're talking about those people, the trainers, um, uh, the content you're producing with the the golden era guys. Um, yeah, that's lovely. Uh, that's a nice message. Um, what was, is there a single greatest obstacle you've overcome? And if so, how have you done it? I think the single greatest obstacle is still just me and I have not overcome it, but I'm like constantly overcoming it. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's really, really difficult to, um, kind of be be building yourself out of the sand that you're creating by doing what you do you know it's like um it's like when you're trying to dig a hole in the, in the beach and the beach waves just keep filling it up kind of <laughs> so it's it's like this constant reshaping uh, that I don't think ever stops. So I don't know that I'll ever overcome that obstacle, but uh, the obstacle is the process, I guess. I feel like that's the that answer would have been thoroughly approved and appreciated by the <laughs> Thai people. Like you couldn't have given a more Thai style answer than that. I love it. Um, what would you, in your journey from you know, let's say zero fights to to two twenty, 
what what would you have done differently? Do you think there's anything in this process you've thought, oh, fuck, I could have saved a year doing this or I probably shouldn't have done that because it led me down this path for a while and I dog-legged back? Um, anything you've kind of, I guess it's almost like a regrets question in the process. Um, no, I'm I'm a very, very firm believer that things come to you at a time that they need to come to you. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't think that if I knew something four years ago that I know now that I would have known what to do with it or what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, if you asked every person in the world who believes in hacks the least, it would be me. <laughs> I don't believe in shortcuts at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that the things that I understand and value now, I understand and value now because of the path that brought me here. Um, I hear a lot of people say they wish they had started Muay Thai younger. Mm. Um, oh, all the time want, people are saying that. Yeah, to be, they want to be better than where they are now or like, oh, uh, if when I was younger, if I had started when I was 19, I would have had no, no idea what I was doing. Like I <laughs> was not the person I needed to be uh, to have Muay Thai become what it's become for me. So the path would have been very different. So yeah. um, I don't, I don't regret things like that. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I totally uh, can relate to that in that, you know, being the person you needed to be to do a particular thing, that isn't the same for everybody. Um, yeah. I can say that like I thought about this business concept or this this community that I'm creating of doing epic stuff. I've thought about that for you know over five years, but it's not until now when I'm traveling full time uh, and working on the side that I've got the, the time to really focus on that. Whereas if I had have really tried to launch this Five years ago, there's no way it would have come to fruition. And I probably would have um, gotten extremely frustrated at myself that I felt like I'd, I'd, I'd ruined an opportunity. So uh, yeah. I think it's, it's a really good point. Any advice you would give to somebody planning who's listened to this and has gone, shit, I want to be this person? Uh, you know, what, what would you say, uh, say to them? Any advice in general about coming to Thailand to train or about... Uh, embarking on a big, incredible journey like this. Uh, Just any advice, I guess. Um, You do not have to know all the details before you make a move. It's usually better not to. (laughs) Uh, So within reason of responsibility of like, you know, knowing kind of where you want to go and and how to responsibly get to that place. Other than that, just make the move. Like Mm. going starting the motion is the hardest part. And once you get that going, your intuitions and your experiences will guide you to the right direction. So don't, don't doubt because you're not entirely sure all the details of the vision, just throw the grenade and jump, (laughs) figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, look, I I totally get that. Um, I guess that's at its core. That's what doing epic stuff is really about it's about trying to inspire people to um to try a new thing and to create new new journeys to to take that first step which i think people find the hardest part of a lot of these uh of anything really is that first step um and there's that adage which i've kind of written down a few times which is the next best time to start something is today and i think that's that is reality and it's easy to to think too far back and i've been i've been in uh in gyms where everyone's like, oh, you know, I wish 
I could kick like the tires, but I never will because I wasn't four years old and doing kicks over tires. Um, right. But yeah, if, if that's your mentality, it's only really holding you back. You, you're not really being the best that you personally can be. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I've thrown this one in just because I'm interested personally about it. So do you feel like Sylvie chose Muay Thai or did Muay Thai choose Sylvie? I think I, I chose Muay Thai. Like the first time I saw it and I was just totally like, that is incredible. I want my body to do that and started, <laughs> started trying to, you know, I don't know. I totally fell in love with how master K was teaching me in his basement and all of these kind of small things. Mm. Um, but in terms of what Muay Thai has become for me, that's not Muay Thai choosing me, but Muay Thai ate me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I chose to approach the tiger, but the tiger fucking ate me. Um, and I, I did not pick that, but it was by continuously saying yes to more of this, more of this, more of this, you know, like I didn't, I didn't anticipate that my life was going to go this way at all. And I'm just lucky that I have the husband that I have who has, you know, driven me and helped make this possible and supported me and is like not letting me cry on the floor. (laughs) Uh, It's, it's a combination of the two. Very cool. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Sylvie. I'm really appreciative that you made the time to chat with me and super cool that I got to catch you fighting live uh, in Chiang Mai. So that was just just happenstance that that occurred. So um, very cool. We got to meet in person. And look, I wish you all the best for the for your continued journey. I think it's very inspirational. It has been to me and I'm sure it is to a lot of other people. And uh, I'll be keeping a close eye on your progress and continuing to uh, support you on Patreon. Thank you so much. And thank you for having such great questions. (laughs) My absolute pleasure. Go kick some ass tomorrow night. I'm sure you will. All right. Thank you. Send me the link when it's up, please. Shall do. Catch you, Sylvie. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. I hope you got some gems from my chat with Sylvie. Clearly, she's a born storyteller herself, uh, and she's actually a prolific content producer in her own right. If you'd like to follow Sylvie's journey, you can catch her on 8limbs.us or join me in becoming a Sylvie patron supporter at patreon.com slash sylviemoy. That's S-Y-L-V-I-E. M-U-A-Y. Becoming a supporter gives you access to a treasure trove of original branded content she is continually producing as part of her Muay Thai library project, which is ongoing. And you can always find the latest Doing Epic Stuff happenings at facebook.com forward slash Doing Epic Stuff, or feel free to just send me an email on mike at doingepicstuff.com. We out.